The earliest written description of diseases in cancer, a breast cancer, is found in the Edwin Smith Papyrus that was written approximately 3000 BC. The writer concluded the, that bulging tumour of the breast was a grave disease and there was no treatment for it. The Egyptians attempted to treat cancers with cauterine, knives and salts and introduced arsenic paste that remained in use as the Egyptian ointment until the 19th century. Now, Josh, I couldn't find any evidence that this earliest cancer was HER2 positive, but imagine what the ancient Egyptians would have thought of the arsenal of weapons against HER2 positive breast cancer that we have at our disposal for treating these ulcers and tumours of the breast. That's a great description, Michael, and I look forward to hopefully educating you, our audience, and maybe some ancient Egyptians a little bit more about breast cancer and HER2 as well. I think ancient Egyptians are a growing audience for uh, oncology, for the inquisitive mind. We've got to make sure we uh, keep them on board as well. We're probably number one in uh, ancient Egypt. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. All right. I I might just get started. Before, Before we go on yet another of our famous tangents. That's it. Or they go back to using arsenic paste. So as you, our audience, would have very likely guessed, today we are talking about HER2 breast cancer. Not just any HER2 breast cancer, but early stage HER2 breast cancer and in the neoadjuvant sphere. The saga of HER2 dates back to 1982. So not quite quite ancient Egypt then, Josh. Not quite, but maybe close, depending how old the people listening are. And it was discovered somewhere between 1982 and 1984 by the collaborative effort of a group of American pioneers and scientists from the Robert A. Weinberg Group in the MIT and Rockefeller and Harvard Universities. Now, this early on, it was described purely as HER2 positive and HER2 negative. And as our listeners might know, and I'm sure Michael definitely does, it's a little bit more complex now in how we define HER2 positivity. And even this area of understanding is changing with some of the latest studies released earlier this year. While the stats do vary between depending on HER2 positivity, from my reading, it's anywhere between 15 to 25% of the breast cancer population. Now, HER2, which can also be referred to as ERB2, proto-oncogene, used to confer a much more aggressive tumour phenotype and express a poor prognosis in patients with this disease. Now, before I continue, Michael, is this still the case? Well, I mean, if left untreated, then sure. But I think we have a much better understanding of the disease process and and as a much wider range of what we can use against it. Is that not correct, Josh? That is correct. Now, breast cancer is the most frequently diagnosed cancer and leading cause of cancer death in women, especially in the US of A. And when treating entails a multidisciplinary team approach and it usually involves the following specialties so surgical oncology radiation oncology medical oncology and we can't forget our lovely anatomical pathologists and adjacent to all of these we've got 
pharmacy specialists, dietitians, exercise physiologists, lymphedema specialists, which we can't forget about because this is a very holistic approach to treating any woman with breast cancer. Really does take a, viv- a village, doesn't it, to, ta- to treat one person with breast cancer? It really does. As it should, it is a or can be a difficult cancer to treat and the treatment time frame is quite long. Usually it's not a month or two and then you go about your day. A lot of the time it's six months or more. Plus with radiotherapy and then potentially adjuvant therapy, you could be looking at the better part of a year just gone. Now, we won't talk too much about this on this episode, but about 5% of patients will be diagnosed with de novo stage 4 breast cancer. And those women who have early stage breast cancer and are HER2 positive are treated with chemotherapy and trastuzumab in the adjuvant therapy phase normally. But this is changing. And those with stage 2 or stage 3 HER2 positive cancer will actually receive neoadjuvant therapy. The way I like to remember neoadjuvant is neo. If anyone's watched the Matrix movies, it comes before. You know, it's the pioneer. And there's a lot of rationale for treating patients neoadjuvantly. The biggest being if we can shrink the cancer, we can do a number of things. The first, reduce the risk of cancer occurrence with increased pathological complete response, which is the objective of every neoadjuvant cancer treatment currently. The second is breast conserving therapy. With larger tumors, the likelihood of requiring a mastectomy is much higher. And if you can shrink this cancer, you can reduce the physical burden on the patient. And especially young patients might not want disfiguring scars in very sensitive regions of their body. Trastuzumab, which is not one of the treatments I'll be talking about in a lot of detail, also known as Herceptin, is usually administered with a non-anthracycline component of chemo rather than sequentially after chemo. Although administration of Trastuzumab sequentially after completion of all chemotherapy has demonstrated activity, although is less effective than concurrent. To try and break this down and make it a little bit it's confusing, like the neoadjuvant, the adjuvant, the metastatic, what do you do when is confusing? And it's a podcast and it's usually a multidisciplinary team that will make that decision. But those with stage one or stage two A and a subset of stage two B are generally considered sort of early stage and early stage breast cancers usually have surgery, either lumpectomy or mastectomy to the breast and the region of the nose, plus or minus radiotherapy. After definitive local treatment, you then give adjuvant therapy. But we're talking about stage two and stage three, people who require neoadjuvant therapy. So we want to try and reduce this and reduce the risk of recurrence. Recurrence rates are about 10 to 23% in those with HER2, small HER2 cancers within five years versus 5% in the HER2 negative. And when I say HER2 negative, I'm referring to the ER, the estrogen receptor, and progesterone receptor positive cancers. Michael, if uh, there's nothing I've missed, I might move on to my trial, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely, Josh. I think the main thing, main takeaway, if we're going to summarize all of those very important facts and figures, is that HER2 positive breast cancer is generally more aggressive and generally uh consequently needs to be treated more aggressively 
That is 100% correct. Please take it away and illuminate us. Illuminate. The illuminating phase will begin after these these ads from our sponsors. No, it will start right now. (laughs) We are talking about the neoadjuvant Neosphere trial from 2012. So it's a little bit old, but it's still a pretty important trial. The background to this trial was there was clinical benefit known for combining HER2-directed monoclonal antibodies pertuzumab and trastuzumab in the metastatic breast cancer setting, which showed far better efficacy than single-agent trastuzumab alone. The rationale for that is that while they're both HER2-drug antibodies, they attach to different parts of the receptor, and by doing that, they have a complementary effect on treating this cancer. Furthermore, in women with operable disease, trastuzumab improves disease-free survival and overall survival when given for a year after, after, I guess, surgical treatment and chemotherapy, and it's shown much better benefits. Now, pertuzumab is an investigational humanized monoclonal antibody directed the dimerization domain of HER2. At currently in 2022, it is no longer investigational. It is used very widely. If it was still investigational after 10 years, you'd be worried what they were investigating, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, I don't want to give away the results of this this trial, but given that it's not investigational, I think we can all make that assumption. Now, the mechanism of action is, as I said previously, the different binding sites, it's more efficacious, they're complementary, it works well. And generally, not too many extra side effects. This particular trial, the method is it was a randomized multi-center international. Open label, meaning it was not blinded, so the patients knew what they were getting. It was a phase two study. So we haven't actually really had a phase two study on our podcast yet, Michael. Do you want to talk a little bit about the differences between phase two and a phase three trial? So in general... There are three phases of investigation prior to a drug being approved and prior to a drug being released. In general, sometimes we see drugs in increasingly nowadays uh, approved on the basis of phase two data as pertuzumab probably was. Uh, phase one is for safety and dosing. So it's finding the, the maximum safe dose dose to uh, uh, apply to the um, uh, apply to a specific problem because there's no point having the most efficacious drug in the world if it's also going to impede on patient safety. Phase two, therefore, looks at efficacy. And this is something that I'm less familiar with, Josh, is the the blurring of the line between phase two and phase three, because it's most obvious when a study is a phase two, when it's a single arm investigational study that, um, that shows that there is some effect of the trial under the micro uh, the um, drug under the microscope which is then put to the ultimate test in phase three where it is compared against what is usually the standard of care not usually not always the first line standard of care but a standard of care of treatment for a certain population of patients uh, but some phase two trials i've seen do have a comparator arm uh, it's frequently placebo controlled but there are comparator arms so maybe josh you can uh, speak further about the uh, overlap uh, between phase two and phase three uh, and has as how it relates to Neosphere. Michael, you, you hit the nail on the head. That was a very good summary. And you're right. 
phase three is generally against standard of care. It's also quite a large trial. You know, in this particular case, there were multiple international sites. Phase two are generally a fair bit smaller. And as you so pertinently put, it's generally, it evaluates how efficacious this treatment is. It's usually about 100 to 300 participants. And some phase three trials, you're going to get thousands of people and it takes several years minimum. Whereas a phase two, usually a couple of months to two years to collect the data, recruit the patients, see the outcomes. And then you also write in talking about some trials, such as this one, I believe, actually lead to FDA approval or TGA approval here in Australia, whereas others need to go to that phase three to really get the data that they want. The other important point to talk about is that phase three trials, they have a lot of different endpoints. It depends on what they're looking at. Is that progression-free survival? Is that overall survival? Is that duration of response? That's just to name a few. Whereas phase two trials are generally efficacy. Of course, not all trials are the same. And not all trials, as Michael said, have comparator arms in phase two, and they might be an investigate, just an investigational arm. And as such, I think each needs to be taken as per the trial mandate and what they're trying to achieve. Moving on from that very good segue, but I think it's important. It took me a while to really understand the difference between the the different phases. But if you know that the larger the number of patients in the trial, you're likely going to be at a later stage of that phase, a later stage of the trial. All right, so the primary endpoint, going back to Neosphere, just in case anyone forgot. Way back around. Let's bring it back. Okay, good. The primary endpoint was pathological complete response in the breast. The secondary endpoint included the clinical response rate, the time to clinical response, breast conserving surgery rate, and safety. I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit, uh, Josh, about pathological complete response and why it's used as a as an endpoint you mentioned it briefly before but why do we use a pcr when you know we have overall survival and progression-free survival with these um particularly with breast cancer so you had two parts of your question so pathological pathological complete response has been known to refer to better overall survival has known to refer to decreased likelihood of relapse and better outcomes overall. Overall survival and actually identifying that data is really difficult and it doesn't come within a two-year time frame, generally unless it's a really aggressive cancer. In the breast sphere, this can take five plus years in order to ascertain is there an overall survival benefit versus the standard of care. The reason for that is that a lot of the standards of care are really good treatments. They're not not saying our treatments are bad, but a lot of cancers are resistant to treatment. For an example, pancreatic cancer. And if you get a three-month progression-free survival, you're likely going to be able to infer that there's probably an overall survival as well. Whereas in breast cancer, especially in the neoadjuvant sphere, you're going to have to follow these patients up for five-plus years minimum to really confer if there's an actual benefit. That's my understanding, Michael, and I am always happy to be corrected if uh, you don't. There is no need for correction here, Josh, as per usual. But if we're going to look at it slightly cynically, it means you don't have to wait for a long time to get your paper out. 
by which time, especially at the rate that um, uh, breast cancer therapies are moving, by the time you get your paper out with your overall survival data, your brand spanking new treatment might be uh, completely redundant and out of date. So PATH-CR rates are a good alternative to, um, to overall survival. And in the more optimistic arena, which I am currently sitting in, it's also great because there are patients who will want this treatment or need this treatment in usually a metastatic setting, not a neoadjuvant setting. But in the metastatic setting, if someone can get a drug across the line, it means they can then jump to this drug and they have another treatment option, which if you've got metastatic cancer, that is hugely important. And you want to jump from one to another to another and hopefully extend your life as much as possible. I'll continue on. The inclusion criteria for this Neosphere trial, they had to have confirmed HER2 positivity. They had to be operable, locally advanced, or inflammatory. An inflammatory, pretty aggressive tumor type. We're not going to go into it much this time. But locally advanced is generally conferred as a T2, T3 lesion with some lymph nodes involved or a really large mass. The primary tumor had to be at least two centimeters in diameter. Their patients had to be over 18 years of age and they weren't able to have received any prior therapy, which makes sense in the neoadjuvant case. Otherwise, it's not neoadjuvant if you've already had therapy. HER2 immunohistochemistry 3 plus or 2 plus and positive for fluorescence or chromo, chromogenic in situ hybridization. Now, I do want to point out that the HER2 positivity sphere is currently changing. Michael, I think a couple of months ago, they were looking at some of these drugs in the weekly HER2 positive setting. Um, I can't account for this specific trial here, but that might be, there's going to be some debate regarding the HER2 positivity. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, that is my understanding, but don't spoil uh, future podcast episodes for our listeners. Yes, uh, coming to a, yeah, a future podcast. Okay, yeah, future podcast, to continue. Yeah. <laughs> ECOG, the ECOG, as we know, ECOG performance status had to be good. They had to have a good left ventricular ejection fraction. And the exclusion criteria is essentially metastatic disease. They had bilateral breast cancers, other malignancies, inadequate function of one of their systems. When breaking down, so this trial, I always seem to get the multi-trialed armed trials. Right, So this has four different arms. I will refer to them in future as arm A, arm B, arm C, and arm D. Oh, so original, Josh. <laughs> Thank you. It's also in the trial here. But <laughs> arm A was trastuzumab, which is the standard of care, plus docetaxel, which is a chemo we're using. Arm B is all three drugs, so trastuzumab, pertuzumab, and docetaxel. Arm C is pertuzumab and trastuzumab, so the two HER2 agents, but no chemo. And Arm D is just pertuzumab plus docetaxel. So the one that I'm really interested in, and I think we should focus on here, is the trastuzumab plus docetaxel, which was at the time probably the standard of care. And compare it to the docetaxel, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab, which is the I'm going to say triplet therapy, right? So remember that's group A versus group B. Most of the patients, when you break down all of the arms, were 
there was about 50-50 break between ER positive and ER negative and HER2 positive, uh, sorry, PR positive and PR negative. So that's estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor. Operable, about 60% of all four arms were operable and about 30% of all four arms had locally advanced disease. Only a small 5 to 7% of each arm was inflammatory. Did you say 60% of um, patients were operable? Yeah, I assume when they say operable... So does that mean I'm like think... 40% of patients at presentation at the start of treatment, at the start of chemotherapy, were deemed inoperable? Well, I think they were deemed locally advanced. Mm. I'm not sure if they were deemed inoperable, but with any of these trials, potentially they were thinking that they might have been borderline operable and then if you shrunk it, they became operable. I think that's the case because... Locally advanced, we still do treat locally advanced, and I think we consider locally advanced these days with lymph node involvement or if there's another site of disease in the breast. Is that your understanding? Yeah. Also, you know, the really, really big tumours invading into into adjacent anatomical structure, structures, chest wall, ribs, that sort of thing, but locally advanced. And, I, and the reason I um, point this out is, is that it is a complete sea change between treating um, locally advanced disease that is unresectable because it's effectively treated as metastatic disease at that point. So no surgery, radiotherapy, and the old saying, it's not curable, but it's treatable. Whereas if you can get a good response in neoadjuvant treatment and turn an inoperable cancer operable, then you start talking about potential cure, which of course is an enormous difference. A huge difference, and that's why breast cancer has a five-year overall survival or of at least 92%. And we very much advocate on this channel to please get your regular mammograms and ultrasounds. The median tumor size for all four arms was about 50 millimeters, with the max being 200 millimeters, right? So that's a huge mass, huge. It's 20 centimeters. Everybody it's... take out their 30 centimeter um, ruler from school. And see how big 20 centimetres is. Huge. This was interesting. Yeah, huge. Absolutely huge. And this was done based on breast clinical examination rather than imaging. I find that really interesting. That's very, that is very interesting. Because if anything, you would think that that would undercall the size of some of these tumours because, you know, there'll be, there's obviously a lot of structure, a lot of anatomy in in a normal breast. And so it would be very easy for you to, feel something that is um that is malignant and think it's anatomical a hundred hundred percent i do have my ruler that i use at work but i i think i'd still very much uh, refer to my imaging guidelines or my imaging results to help support my validation but in saying that and this is important with neoadjuvant you will be examining the breast regularly because you want to know that the tumor is shrinking right? There's no point giving treatment such as this if the tumor is not shrinking. And I am aware, Michael, that I is one of my pet subjects and I quite enjoy talking about it. So I will move on so we can talk about some results. But just before I do, let's talk about the structure of how they gave the treatment. Trastuzumab was given every three weeks. Pertuzumab was a loading dose and then given every three weeks. Docetaxel, hopefully was well tolerated at this point, was given every three weeks. 
after completion of the neoadjuvant treatment, eligible patients underwent surgery, and then some had adjuvant chemotherapy. And I think this is a bit of a, I'm not going to go into this because this, this area of oncology has already changed. So patients who don't get complete pathological response in this area might go into a different drug called TDM1, which I don't think we're talking about today. Which we are talking about today. We are talking about today. <laughs> I, I noticed that you put a little pause in right before, just in case you were wrong. Just in case. So, sorry, everybody. Let's talk about the results. The pathological complete response in the intention to treat population was 45.5% in the group B. So, for those who don't remember, group B is the pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and docetaxel. And if we compare it to the trastuzumab and docetaxel, that's only 29%. So, that's a difference of 16 plus percent and there was about 107 in each of these groups so you saw that in 31 patients of group a and 49 patients of group b now patients who had pathological complete response and node negative disease was 21.5 percent in group a and 39.3 percent in group b so still pretty significant difference between the two arms right node positive disease was wasn't too different um so you get those who had pathological complete response and node positive disease was quite similar between group a and group b which i found interesting so that's just something to kind of take into account the significant jump in the results clinical response in primary breast tumor so complete or partial response of the primary breast tumor was 79 percent in group a and 88% in group B. So overall response in the breast tumors and nodes examined, so complete or partial response was seen in 81%. So that's still a really good result of the trastuzumab and docetaxel and 88% in the trastuzumab, pertuzumab and docetaxel. So you are seeing a benefit. And I'm not going to talk about group C or group D because it's just going to confuse things. But I will say this, just giving the HER2 antibodies does not confer as good a result if it's not combined with chemo. So you want to, one, one of the things that we have learned recently or the last 10 years, which is pretty recent, is the heterogeneity of cancers, but also that the microenvironment in which they live in. You want to sensitize these cancer cells so that the HERTI conjugate antibodies work really well. So they've found that by using chemo, it actually has a better response than not using chemo. And the results are pretty significant. They're at least 20% less pathological complete response or partial response when chemo is not used. Toxicities, another favorite of mine. We haven't really talked about HER2 toxicities, have we, Michael? No, we haven't. We haven't at all. Yeah, so what they found is the... Group A, Group B, I refer to that as well. They're, they're pretty similar. So the combined HER2 treatment plus docetaxel, you get alopecia. That's from the docetaxel. That is not from that is not from the uh, intervention trial drugs. Neutropenia in fifty percent again, not from the trial drug. Diarrhea could be. What What are the things we really look out for in the HER2? setting michael you know these patients from a toxicity perspective look the one that everybody jumps up and down about josh as i'm sure you're driving towards is cardiac toxicity 
it is cardiac toxicity. And tell me, is it a permanent toxicity or does it reverse itself? Now, this is uh, uh, for our BPT listeners, our, our listeners who are doing their physician's exam in Australia. The answer to this is that it is reversible compared with anthracycline chemotherapy. Any any chemo that ends in rubicin uh, is irreversible cardiomyopathy. However, Joshua, for the oncologists listening and the oncology trainees listening. I'm in trouble now. <laughs> it's, it's not always so cut and dry. So, I mean, there are cases, of course, where uh, despite ceasing trastuzumab, despite being started on cardioselective beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, referral to a heart failure specialist, uh, the existing left ventricular um, dysfunction does not resolve. So it's not 100%, but uh, for the purposes of didactic learning and fitting things into very neat boxes, generally speaking, the trastuzumab-induced uh, cardiomyopathy is reversible. Didactic teaching is great. It, that, that was just a, uh, then, uh, just a very long-winded way of saying sometimes. Sometimes. But if multiple choice question, it can cause it generally reverses. We do echoes every three months in this case, a baseline echo. You do not want a 38-year-old to have irreversible heart failure from you giving a treatment. Now, specific to these drugs, things to talk about, congestive heart failure, Michael mentioned, and that's probably the main one that uh, we talk about, some liver derangements as well. All the other toxicity are predominantly docetaxel-related. Now we are up to the five-year update. I feel I've been talking for ages. Roughly roughly five years, Josh, roughly five years. (laughs) Roughly five years. So we've got a five-year update analysis. I think it's from 2017, maybe 2018. And they've given a progression-free survival, disease-free survival, and safety. The five-year progression-free survival was 81% in the group A, 86%, which, you know, we're rooting for here in group B. So that's the trastuzumab, pertuzumab, and the docetaxel. And group C was 73%, and group D was 73% as well. The hazard ratio was 0.69 when comparing group B and group A. So they're the arms we care about. As you can see, roughly 30% better outcome from disease, progression-free survival. Disease-free survival results were also consistent with progression-free survival. 81% in group A, 84% in group B, and 80% in group C, and 75% in group D. So really really good results. And I think that's something, something to say with complete pathological response or aiming for complete pathological response. This is a poster child for why we should be aiming for that. Michael, any comments? There's, there, there is um, just to sort of pile on to the very good point you're making. It's also um, a, a, an outcome that has been validated as well in previous studies. So I can't remember the exact name of the study, but there has, has been trials that specifically look at whether pathological complete response in breast cancer um, actually correlates with overall survival. So there's a, there's a good amount of weight behind it. It's not just... Um, something that people have been taking as something that's more convenient. Um, Josh, I did want to ask, did you mention that uh, patients in the in, in enrolled in Neosphere, they weren't allowed to have previous chemotherapy before enrollment? 
I believe that is the case. I think when I looked at the inclusion and exclusion of stated no prior treatment was allowed. Because it's worth sort of linking this because it's it's a good study. It shows that there is a benefit of pertuzumab, but the fact that it is a phase two study is probably the reason why pertuzumab is still struggling to get approval on the PBS in Australia for um, neoadjuvant treatment. So there is, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this. I'm sure you have this info, Josh, but there'll be, there's financial uh, considerations for patients in Australia. But the chemo proportion, docetaxel, doesn't really reflect what is used in clinical practice for a lot of these patients. Um, and Josh, would you like to uh, uh, expand on that potential point? I would absolutely love to. The backbone of breast cancer is really an anthracycline-based regimens. So dose-dense or maybe not dose-dense, it's variable between institutions, but it's usually doxorubicin with cyclophosphamide. And if it's dose-dense, that's going to be every two weeks for two months, followed by weekly paclitaxel. The caveat here is that's the that's the adjuvant of an ERPR positive breast cancer, and things are slightly different in the neoadjuvant sphere. Because in my my experience, my lesser experience to you, of course, um, AC and then Taxol, it's also worth saying that we generally use paclitaxel every week as opposed to docetaxel every three weeks. Um, that is what I commonly use in patients who are high risk and who would who we would probably consider for pertuzumab. Is is your experience different? 100% uh, the same, Michael. You want to hit young patients hard because they can tolerate this chemo. This chemo is not a light chemo, but it will improve their outcomes. So there is a limitation to this study, and Michael hit it on the head, that we're not using the current gold standard of care. And the question is, would there have been a massive difference of using the chemotherapy, the correct chemotherapy with the pertuzumab? Or is it something that maybe this is an area we can then de-escalate where we use less intense chemotherapy, use the HER2 therapy with it and still have the same outcomes? These questions haven't been answered yet. And the third point to what I've just said, my first and second point is that just because you get a pathological complete response, yes, it infers a better overall survival, but it does not guarantee a it. very there important point. Next, very important point to make. There have, some, there have been some head and neck studies that look at immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant space. And what they found, they're like, is this an area we can de-escalate treatment? Because every oncologist wants to de-escalate treatment if it's going to confer the same overall survival benefit. It makes our lives so much easier and the patient, more importantly, the patient's lives so much easier. So it's a watching this space. But to summarize the article, there are very few extra toxicities from using pertuzumab with trastuzumab and the current standard of care in whichever country you work in or whatever your health service supports. If your patient, if it's on your health service, we'd recommend using it. And if your patient can afford it, we'd probably say to use it, especially if they're younger and they have many years to live and they've got many other social commitments and life commitments and whatever it is in their world, 
we want to try and ensure that they get to those goals. It is a bit of a hefty um, financial uh, commitment, though, Josh. In Australia, it should be no, it should be noted that we're talking pretty much exclusively about Australia at this point, um, because it's not funded for the PBS for this uh, indication. Um, I think patients are out of pocket. Oh, I could be wrong, but I think it's about four and a half thousand dollars to get the neoadjuvant pertuzumab treatment. So, you know, we should never discriminate on the basis of finances. Um, and obviously patients will surprise you about what they're willing to do. Um, but it is an extra um, an extra layer that we often don't have to deal with in terms of our discussions with patients, especially segue, uh, as we have very good treatment for those who don't have a pathological complete response from uh, directed um her two therapy in the neoadjuvant setting. I wonder what that could be, Mark. Well, care to elaborate? Well, let me tell you, Josh. Let me tell you. And and this in if for, for Australian um, practitioners, this is a debate that I've I've heard multiple times at multiple different centres. Which is, pertuzumab is great. We have a good body of evidence that supports that. But what we also have, which for, from the patient perspective is free, uh, is also great. And that is TDM1 or uh, trastuzumab m tansine. Uh, but that's far too many syllables for us, so we call it TDM1. Uh, as Josh has said in, uh, in his uh, thorough analysis of Neosphere, the risk of disease recurrence or death is higher among patients with HER2-positive early breast cancer who have residual disease after neoadjuvant chemo. Uh, or systemic therapy, because if you have HER2, um, you will at least get trastuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting. Uh, And it's important to note, because this is something that confused the hell out of me when I was starting out, residual disease in this setting and by the lettering of of the PBS actually means residual disease in the surgical specimen. It doesn't mean residual disease in the patient, because that's, that's not good. Uh, So you uh, the patient has their mastectomy, lumpectomy, whatever surgical procedure they um, uh, have decided to go for. The surgical uh, specimen is sent to our aforementioned very important friends in the anatomical pathology department um, who are able to tell us whether there's residual cancer after we've nuked the cancer with neoadjuvant treatment or if it's all just scar tissue. And if it's scar tissue, that is deemed a pathological complete response where there is 0% residual disease. That is an important distinction because when I was uh, getting approvals, my first approvals for TDM1, I was like residual disease, but I thought we got it all out. And someone had to point out, no, Michael, it's actually residual disease in the anatomical specimen which makes a lot of sense. I must confess I had the same thought process when I started treating this breast cancer. I'm like, but but how does it cure you if you have cancer still in the We were body? always told that's incurable. I think every uh, oncology trainee uh, who has come into training at the, in the last uh, few years has had a similar um, experience. So if you have residual disease after neoadjuvant treatment, your risk of recurrence or death is higher. Um, the previous standard of care after neoadjuvant um, treatment, as Josh mentioned, was completion of one year of HER2-targeted therapy with trastuzumab. So regardless of what you ha- what the result of your neoadjuvant treatment is, you're going to have some adjuvant treatment. 
but the previous standard of care, regardless of your path CR status, was you, you just get, um, what is it? I think it's 17 additional weeks of trastuzumab after your treatment, or 14 more weeks for 17 in total. Now, TDM1, what is TDM1? TDM1 is an antibody drug conjugate. And this is, uh, this. I think, for my money, this is the uh, most interesting uh, class of um, anti-cancer um, drugs where basically they have a targeted antibody against, in this case, HER2, and they stick, in my mind, it's just like a globule, but it's probably actually just a molecule of a cytotoxic chemotherapy. Um, and the, the agents are in the name. Trastuzumab is the antibody and emtansine is the drug the cytotoxic component. And the idea is that the antibody binds to the HER2 receptor and then is able to deliver the cytotoxic component directly into the cancer cell. And uh, as we'll talk about with uh, uh, TDM1's younger and much more successful um, uh, sibling TDXD in a later podcast, uh, there is also the potential for what we call a bystander effect where Uh, One cell has the cytotoxic payload delivered, but then the surrounding cells are affected. And the idea, the overarching idea is that this only affects cancer cells. It's it's a way of getting chemo into cancer cells as opposed to napalming a patient's entire body and causing side effects that way. So the Catherine trial was the uh, trial that uh, spearheaded the use of TDM1 in these patients with uh, non-pathological complete response. It was a multi-center randomized open label phase three trial that managed to get almost 1500 patients enrolled. So coming back to what you said, Josh, about phase two to phase three, even just by the numbers, you can tell that this is a big phase three trial. TDM1 was given uh, every three weeks for up to 14 cycles, and it was compared with trastuzumab given same uh, over the same uh, number of cycles at the same interval. Patients were randomized uh, one-to-one, and in order to uh, meet, criteria, meet uh, the um, uh, inclusion criteria for the study, they had to have uh, obviously histologically confirmed HER2 non-metastatic primary breast cancer, because otherwise, what are, you gonna, what are you actually treating? How are you going to fit this into your hypothesis? Uh, with residual invasive disease detected pathologically in the surgical specimen. Exclusion criteria were patients who had T1A or T1B, so very small cancers, which uh, Josh mentioned previously, uh, frequently are resected um, uh, without any sort of systemic therapy, but at the same time, these are sub five millimeter tumors, so so very, very small. And as oncologists, we, we frequently don't see them. Do they have a size limit? Where they were they included in this trial? So, so the the tumor stage in the uh, in the eligibility criteria was T one C to T four and uh, nodal stage N naught to N three. So disease that you could have a big tumor or uh, a tumor involving lots of nodes. And I believe this is actually the um, tumor stage initially, because we are looking at sort of microscopic uh, invasive disease, uh, microscopic amounts of invasive disease. And I think looking at the stats, T1C, for anyone who wants to know what that size is, I think that's at least 10 millimetres. Yeah, so we are we are looking at uh, at very least 10 millimetre or one centimetre um, size tumours, so not small, because anything smaller you might just cut out. And 
practically speaking, if you have a, a very small tumor, you're going to see the surgeon, they're going to take it out. And then you're going to say, hey, actually, it's HER2 positive. So this whole neoadjuvant setting might not actually happen. Uh, patients were stratified uh, by a clinical stage of presentation, hormone receptor status, preoperative HER2-directed therapy, and pathological nodal status. And the endpoint was um, invasive disease-free survival, which was defined as the time to randomization until the date of the first occurrence of uh, recurrent disease, either locally or distally. And the secondary uh, endpoints were overall disease-free survival, overall survival, uh, and safety. So, Josh, um, what would you say, um, coming back to our point on um, previous chemotherapy and the the uh, uh, quote-unquote flaws of the Neosphere trial, um, in this study, patients did have anthracycline-based chemotherapy. What would you say the, the percentage of patients was um, that had previous anthracycline? Take a punt. 80% is my first and final guess. And I, is that your first and final guess because you have the trial in front of you? I do not. It was just, maybe I've read it before, but this is a number I plucked out. I didn't think it was going to be 100 because there's always people that are older, people that wouldn't tolerate it, don't want those risks. But the majority of clinicians I have seen, especially if this is a neoadjuvant trial, I mean, you know, TDM1 after treatment, but, you know, it is still a neoadjuvant kind of idea, I mm. guess is that you want to hit them hard. Well, you're, you're absolutely right, and this is why I so unjustly accuse you of cheating. Um, uh, 76 and 78% in the TDM1 and trastuzumab groups, respectively. So, so yeah, nearest makes no difference, 80%. Um, how many patients in the group do you think had had trastuzumab and pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting in this study? And this was an international trial, wasn't it? That is it? correct. 40%? No, not even that. It was less than 20%. So 80% of patients had trastuzumab alone. Interesting. But I think I think in our, going back to my trial, because I love to talk about my trials, I think it's something you do need to discuss with your patients. Oh, absolutely. Well, no, we're not saying that you, that you shouldn't just because it wasn't in Catherine, but um, it is a surprising point to make that pertuzumab doesn't really seem to have uh, taken off and taken the world by storm as TDM1. So uh, in terms of the other demographic data, so uh, the clinical stage of presentation, again, 75% had operable breast cancer, which was the reason why I asked you, Josh, about um, the operable breast cancer in Neosphere, because it does seem, looking at the data or looking at the presented data, that 15% of patients were deemed inoperable or borderline operable at time of diagnosis, which for those 15% of patients, if you get them to an operation, is just fantastic. 72% of patients were hormone receptor positive as well. So that is uh, a potentially important point um, to uh, to point out is that on the one hand, if you have a triple positive breast cancer, so um, a breast cancer that has both um, estrogen and progesterone or ER because we we use the American spelling, and uh, PR um, progesterone, as well as HER2. Uh, I've had uh, oncology, a breast cancer specialist say that you may expect a lesser response to HER2 because HER2 is not the sole driver of um, the cancer growth. You might also um, need some anti-hormonal uh, treatment sprinkled in there as well. 100%, Michael. And I didn't mention this, or if I might have, but Neosphere also showed that in those who were 
ER positive and PR positive, they actually had a lesser response to HER2 treatment, which does, as we, we do explain, there's not just a single driver, there's not just a single pathway pushing these cancers along. And whilst we've spoken about it in previous podcast episode, the, the use of adjuvant endocrine therapy, that would become very important in this particular scenario. Yeah, so clinically speaking, if you have a, a triple positive HER2, um, a, a triple positive um, breast cancer in front of you, and they have a non pathological complete response at uh, post surgery, you can still give them TDM1 because the HER2 is probably the poorest prognostic factor in that cancer. But you will also likely give them some anti hormonal therapy as well, an AI or, or trastuzumab. Not trastuzumab, tamoxifen. Um, so in terms of results, let's get to the meat of this. So the median duration of follow-up was 41 months, which again is a phenomenon that is very commonly seen in breast cancer trials. You need to follow up these patients for a long time to get, um, data on things like overall survival and disease-free survival. So the invasive disease-free survival was significantly higher in the TDM1 group with a hazard ratio of 0.5. So you're half as likely with uh, TDM1, then trastuzumab to have a recurrence. Um, distant recurrence occurred in 78 patients in the TDM1 group and 118 patients in the trastuzumab group. I believe this was over the course of the 40, 41 months. The risk of distant disease recurrence has a hazard ratio of 0.6 and the overall hazard ratio for death was 0.7, though it's important to note that this wasn't statistically statistically significant, probably because we're dealing with such small numbers. Josh mentioned earlier, we are continuously looking to improve our breast cancer treatments, but what we have, and particularly after the advent of trastuzumab, I believe in the in the um, early to mid-90s, um, our treatments are still bloody good, and we are just trying to optimize these as much as we can. So the benefit was present across stratification cohorts, and it was observed regardless of neoadjuvant HER2-targeted therapy. So trastuzumab alone, the hazard ratio was 0.49, so higher benefit for TDM1. But trastuzumab plus pertuzumab, the hazard ratio for um, disease-free recurrence was 0.54, which of course raises the question, Josh, why? <laughs> I suspect what it comes down to is that um, if you have a non-pathological response, so remember that, uh, for example, Neosphere, they were looking at pathological complete response rates and it was um, it was demonstrably better. Um, trastuzumab plus pertuzumab versus trastuzumab alone. But we are picking out the patients who did not respond. And so it would be reasonable to assume that even if they had had trastuzumab and pertuzumab, they still have a resistant cancer because it hasn't had, they haven't had a complete pathological response. And so regardless, because TDM1 is such an active drug, you are going to get a benefit regardless of what you have before. Josh has got his hand up again. Yes. Now you can edit the thing about it. It's that. like being in class. <laughs> Michael, I have a question for you. No, I just wanted to say this. This comes down to something I mentioned at the start of the, the topic, which is the heterogeneity of HER2 cancers and just cancers in general is we as clinicians, as researchers, are only scraping the top of this barrel. Cancers change over time 
and resistance and mechanisms change over time. So just because HER2 cancer therapy works really well in patient A doesn't mean they're going to have the same significant result in patient B because the tumor biology is different. And Michael was right. So if you've got a resistant tumor who's had trastuzumab and pertuzumab, meaning that you're hitting two targets and it's still not getting a complete pathological response, and in patient A, but patient B does, you can probably and very safely assume that patient B has a less aggressive tumor type than patient A. Yeah, absolutely. That's all. So in terms of safety, uh, 14 cycles were completed in 71% of patients receiving TDM1 and 81% receiving trastuzumab. So it is more toxic. That is an unavoidable fact. 10% of patients uh, in the TDM1 group had a dose reduction. Obviously, no percent of patients in the trastuzumab group had a dose reduction because we don't dose reduce, don't dose reduce trastuzumab. Well, I'll try saying that five times fast. Uh, the most common grade three adverse events uh, were thrombocytopenia and hypertension in the TDM1 group. And the most common adverse events leading to discontinuation were thrombocytopenia, hyperbilirubinemia, uh, LFT derangement, peripheral neuropathy, and increase, uh, decreased, I should say, ejection fraction, which because TDM1 still has that trastuzumab component is, um, is still something that we need to monitor for. So putting this all into context, to summarize Catherine, so TDM1 improved outcomes in patients with residual HER2 positive disease post-surgery with the trade-off of slightly increased toxicity. And I guess, Josh, coming back to what we were saying about the um, hazard ratios with patients receiving trastuzumab versus trastuzumab-pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting, I guess if cost was no option or if pertuzumab uh, was uh, authorized for use in the neoadjuvant setting. It wouldn't really be a. Uh, it wouldn't really be a question. You would. Um, uh, you would give trastuzumab, pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting, maximize a patient's poss- uh, chances of getting a pathological complete response, and if they didn't, you'd suck it up and go on to TDM one. But in the current setting, where pertuzumab does incur a significant financial cost, are you routinely um, discussing um, pertuzumab with patients because I have um, spoken to oncologists who say, look, TDM1 is so good and the benefit is probably similar or to the point of being almost identical, um, regardless of what anti-hertotherapy you've had in the neoadjuvant setting. So why put the patients out financially if, you know, they're um, potentially going to have to go into TDM1 Anyway, what say you to that? That's a great question. I think it's not so much uh, you're going to definitely have a better overall survival. I think some people want everything and they are entitled to have that conversation that, yes, we, we don't know if the trastuzumab plus pertuzumab in this particular scenario is going to infer such a, such a greater response given that we now have TDM1, which was not the case when Neosphere first came out. But in saying that, a few percentage points means the world to someone who doesn't get recurrent disease. And there are those who are very happy to pay that money in order to do it. So 35-year-old, female, three kids, full-time work. Let's say she's a, 
I don't know, a lawyer in some firm. And a pharmacist. A pharmacist, pharmacist lawyer. <laughs> um, we're very, we're very unique and original on this. this the, the joke here for people who are listening is that jo- Josh's older sister is a very successful pharmacist. So whenever we have a hypothetical patient, he always reaches for pharmacy as their, uh, uh, as their uh, occupation. As, as a caveat, my sister is very well, and there was a pharmacy conference on that weekend, and I've been to it. Anyway, not not the point. It's a pharmacist lawyer who's 35, has three kids, and she's got quite a large mass. You've given the neoadjuvant therapy. You've offered her pertuzumab, saying it does infer an increased pathological complete response with progression-free survival. But we don't know in the context of TDM1 if it's going to make that much of a difference. She might say... I want this because I know what I need and I know what I want to achieve and the money is not an object or not an objective issue for me. So I think, yes, they're probably not getting a massive benefit having the second drug, but there's not there's also not a massive drawback. So I think what I would do is I would discuss it and say, you're not getting an inferior treatment if you don't have the pertuzumab, but it is something to consider. Yeah, and I guess... Um... A couple of points before we before we finish up, um, based on further to what you said, you know, even people who are less well off than our hypothetical pharmacist lawyer um, will sometimes prioritize. They will find ways to to find the money either from you know liquidating assets, um, borrowing from friends, all this sort of stuff. Um, but if they are willing to prioritize that, then it is not necessarily our place to say you shouldn't do that if it is of significant importance to them. I guess the flip side as well, uh, or, or sorry, the other benefit is that if they do get a pathological complete response, they get trastuzumab as opposed to TDM1, which is demonstrably less toxic. There's no cytotoxic or, or myelosuppressive component with trastuzumab as compared to TDM1. TDM1 is generally pretty well tolerated, but it is there. The flip side, of course, is we give them the maximum treatment, um, but there's not really, as you sort of infer, Josh, there's not really much lost if they don't have a pathological complete response. Their their um, outcomes are not going to be as good. We know this, but they were probably always not going to be good owing to the heterogeneity of their of their cancer. Um, so the so. There is not, it is not the end of the world if they don't get a pathological complete response. So that's right. Now, so I think I, I, might, I might finish off. We might summarize. Is that all right, Michael? Please summarize away. Great. In summary, pharmacists, lawyers are just incredible and they will rule the world one day. But re- regarding our trials, Neosphere, Pertuzumab has a better complete pathological response versus trastuzumab with docetaxel. Limitations to this treatment are that of not given with really the standard of care that we provide from a chemotherapy arm, but we can definitely say that there is some benefit there. And if you have the finances or that's something you want, it is an option, but you're not missing out if you don't have that treatment, the, the, the pertuzumab. With the TDM1 trial that Michael spoke about, it's another option for patients that do not have complete pathological response, which infers, which infers better outcomes 
than those who would have just had, I guess, adjuvant trastuzumab really in the the yesteryear or five years ago. They would have just had that. And it is a great drug, some toxicities, but the hazard ratios do support the fact that you are reducing the risk of this cancer coming back and you've got better PFS and better response rates. With that summarized, sort of our, our two, uh, we, we kind of winded a little bit and I think... It was a bit of a winding road, but yeah, yeah. As as always, we got there in the end. So I think that was an excellent summary, Josh. Thank you, and thank you for your discussion of Neosphere. Um, join us next time where we will uh, come to the conclusion of our her to uh, duology of podcasts, um, where we talk about what to do in the first line setting when it does come back. So join us next time for that. Thank you very much, Josh, and uh, we'll see you all next time. Goodbye.